Happy Sabbath, Boiling Brook Seventh-day Adventist Church. It is an honor to be with you today. I believe, as it says in Hebrews 4.12, the Word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, and it has the ability to divide the soul from the spirit, the joint from the marrow, and expose our innermost thoughts and desires. I believe that is exactly what God will do for us on this day if we will open our hearts and allow His truth to pierce it. I've been assigned the chapter of Matthew 5, verses 21 to 24, and I'm excited about this assignment. I'm excited about what this passage will do inside of our souls. Partly why I'm excited about this passage is it comes from one of my favorite parts of the entire Bible. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 make up what we know as the Sermon on the Mount, and is the longest recording of continuous dialogue from Jesus. Here we see him inviting us to consider his kingdom and his worldview. I believe that the Sermon on the Mount is the single most important statement on the philosophy of Christian living that we have. I also believe it's the greatest exposition of ethics of all times. So I'm excited for what we will learn today as we look at a small portion of the Sermon on the Mount. Before we read this word together, let's pray. God, thank you for your word. I pray today your spirit would fill me. Do not let me speak anything that would lead my brothers or sisters astray. Fill me now, God, and be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 5, verses 21 to 24. This is how it reads. You have heard it said, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or a sister is subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, you idiot or empty-headed person, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, is in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering a gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother or your sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. God, I ask that you just add a blessing and an understanding that is so deep that we're overwhelmed with your truth from its reading. I'm excited to dig into this passage and dissect it with you. First, I want to look at the context. It's so important for us in today's age to actually understand the message that Jesus was saying to the original audience. When we understand how the culture and the setting of the people who originally heard this word took the message then we can understand the true message and apply it to our lives in the year 2020. So I want you to recognize, first of all, that Jesus was speaking to a crowd of people in Galilee. And the Sermon on the Mount very starkly contrasts most of the readings that they heard in the temple, because most of the time what they were hearing and how they were admonished had to do with their behavior. But the Sermon on the Mount has very little to do with our behavior, very little to do with what we are to believe, our theology. 
and much more to do with who we are to be, our character. And it is out of our character that our Christian living flows. So this is the context of the Sermon on the Mount. And right here in Matthew chapter 5, we have the first of what is known as the six antitheses. And these are called the six antitheses because Christ says, you have heard it said six times. And in each of these times, he invites people into the deeper understanding and the deeper meaning of what his true value, his kingdom core thought and worldview is. Just before we read these texts in Matthew 5, we actually see that Jesus was talking about the fact that his law will not change, that he didn't come to do away with the law, he came to fulfill the law. He invites people to consider that their righteousness has to be much different than the righteousness of their religious leaders. He's inviting them to consider going beneath, well beneath the surface of behavior to the character of their personhood. And here is where we begin. You have heard it said, do not murder. But I say to you something even deeper than murder. What is the condition of your heart? Do not be angry with your brother. Please do not slander your brother or your sister. And then he ends this text really taking time to focus on the harmony, the relational healing, the reconciliation that is so important to him and his kingdom and his values. I want to start out by looking at his first point. Do not be angry. Now, I confess to you that I think in our Christian church, we have misunderstood anger. And in misunderstanding anger, we have misunderstood this text. I want you to make sure you notice what it says. If you are angry, you are subject to judgment. We know because the Bible is full of examples of Christ being angry, of God himself being angry and having wrath. So if God has anger and God is perfect and holy, we know that his anger is righteous. So anger in and of itself is not where the problem lies. It's what's happening with my anger. What is the motivation of my anger? What is the outcome of my anger? And that's why your anger will be judged, to actually surmise all of the answers to those questions. Let's just look at a few of the verses regarding God's anger. There's more than we could absolutely cover today, but I want you to really see that anger is a true part of who God is and how he responds and interacts to his creation. If we look at Romans 1 verse 18, it says God's anger is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. God's anger. If we look at Ephesians 5 verse 6, it says, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the anger of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. I hope you'd pause and recognize that in these two instances, speaking of God's anger, he's angry because of the relational manipulation, the relational control that he sees happening between his children, and it angers him, a righteous anger. 
I submit to you that anger actually is the natural response to injustice, that when we see an injustice, we should become angry. I also submit to you that the definition of injustice is any violation of God's design for life. Any violation of God's design for life. If we really stop and think about that, friends, I'm actually concerned that Christians are far too subdued. That Christians, by and large, are not angry enough. That God has righteous anger, and that righteous anger comes from injustice. And injustice is any violation of God's design for life. So I should become angry when I see what he has designed to be happening, not be what's happening at all. I should be angry when I see the earth, the creation that he has made, being treated in ways that he never designed it to be treated. I should be angry when I see human beings treated in a way that he never created them to be treated. These first two verses, Romans 1.18 and Ephesians 5.16, are exactly about people treating other people in ways that he never sanctioned, that he never planned for, manipulating them, speaking empty words to them, and deceiving them. God's anger is real, and I believe that Christians actually aren't angry enough, at least with righteous anger, because we've misunderstood anger. Continuing with verses about God's anger, in Revelation 14, 10, and 11, it says, He also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured out in full strength into a cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of of the Lamb. I want you to recognize that God's anger against injustice is righteous, and it is real. And I want you to recognize what God ultimately has done with that anger. It says here in Revelation 14, he will drink the wine, the wrath. It will be poured out in full strength into a cup. Do you remember who drank the cup of God's wrath against sin and injustice, Christ said over and over in the garden, it is not my will, Father, but if there's no other way than your will that I drink this cup, then I will do it. God took his righteous anger and he turned it against himself in order that I and no other person will ever actually have to receive the wrath of God's anger unless we choose that we would rather have the wrath of his anger than have the substitute that he's graciously, graciously given us. And this is evident in John 3, verse 36. Whoever believes and accepts the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not shall not see life, but the wrath of God will remain on him. Not because God desires that you are the object of his wrath, that's why he turned it against himself, but because God in his kingdom honors freedom. God in his kingdom exists in full love 
which requires the full freedom of choice. Friends, I want you to consider that as Christians, we're actually not angry enough. In the times that we are angry, are not actually righteous anger, but unrighteous anger. We've given anger a bad rap. And in giving it a bad rap, we've chosen simply to numb ourselves, to act like, okay, well, I'm not angry, or to really not see the injustice that's happening around us. And in doing so, we're misrepresenting God himself. I want to take some time now to actually consider what's the difference between righteous anger and unrighteous anger? And how do I know if my anger is righteous or not? First, I want to submit to you as a fallen human being, even our righteous anger will be tainted with our fallenness. This side of heaven, we are not perfect. But if I will say, God, let you live inside of me and see things the way that you see them, and let my heart burn with what your heart burns for, then we can begin to recalibrate our character so that our anger looks more and more like God's anger, righteous. So let's look at some of the things that actually happen in righteous anger. First, let's start with the definition. At the same time and comparatively, we're going to look at unrighteous anger step by step. I want you to consider that righteous anger is a hatred of evil and a love of good. A hatred of evil and a love of good. Unrighteous anger, on the other hand, is not simply the inverse of righteous anger. It's far more insidious than that. In fact, unrighteous anger is not really concerned with evil or good at all. Unrighteous anger is concerned with self, self-fulfillment, and self-gratification. The definition of unrighteous anger is a hatred of vulnerability and a love of control. Again, righteous anger is a hatred of evil and a love of good. And unrighteous anger is a hatred of vulnerability and a love of control. Righteous anger is a surgical instrument used to destroy evil and ugliness and restore beauty and good, a surgical instrument used to destroy evil and ugliness and restore beauty and good. Unrighteous anger is a weapon used to disseminate its opponent, to decimate its opponent and restore power and control for oneself. Unrighteous anger is a weapon used to decimate its opponent and restore power and control for one's self. Righteous anger is a tool of restoration. It's motivated by redemption. Unrighteous anger is a tool of self-fulfillment, and it's motivated by my needs and my satisfaction. Righteous anger exposes. It cries out, watch out. You're in danger of violating love and of doing damage to yourself and to others. Righteous anger exposes. Unrighteous anger defends. It yells, don't inconvenience me, don't bother me, don't disagree with me, and don't wound me. If you do, you will pay. Unrighteous anger. Righteous anger. It warns, it invites change, and it wounds in order to restore. I want you to understand that 
righteous anger is very paradoxical because while it has the power to inflict pain, at the same time, it constantly is burning for restoration and redemption, constantly. Unrighteous anger controls, intimidates, and injures in order to achieve the object of its desire. Unrighteous anger controls, intimidates, and injures in order to achieve the object of its desire. Righteous anger, it honors freedom and it honors choice while it speaks truth about the potential for ill. Righteous anger honors freedom and it honors choice while at the same time it speaks truth on the potential for ill. Unrighteous anger, it suppresses freedom in order to control the situation and ensure its own satisfaction. Friends, if we are angry, which I think a lot of the time we actually are numb, but if we are angry, let's be honest, is our anger righteous anger or unrighteous anger? Righteous anger should be the natural response to injustice. And unrighteous anger, friends, actually destroys us and those around us. It's not concerned with good and evil. It's concerned with me, myself, and I, controlling the situation to get what I want. I want to help you understand what we often do we displace what should be disappointment, and we actually choose anger instead. And we do this out of the very definition of unrighteous anger. Unrighteous anger is the hatred of vulnerability and the love of control. If you actually stop and think about it, disappointment is the correct response, the correct emotion to having an unmet expectation. And most of the time, when we're getting all puffed up with unrighteous anger, we're actually just dealing with an expectation which is unmet. But rather than being vulnerable and recognizing, I'm hurt that what I expected didn't come to fruition. I'm hurt that I did not get what I needed to thrive in this moment. I'm disappointed by the way things played out we actually become righteously angered to demand that our expectations are fulfilled. It's time for us to surrender our heart to God and let him begin to change our unrighteous anger or even our numbness and failure to feel anger at all into righteous and holy anger. I want to look at a couple examples because we've talked a lot of clinical language, but I want you to recognize how this plays out in the daily. I'm going to suggest that some of you might have a person like this living in your own home, or you might even be this person. But here's an example of unrighteous anger on full display. You have a person in your home who is using anger to control the atmosphere, to control the situation, and to control the environment. They do not want to be bothered. They do not want to be inconvenienced. They do not want to be challenged. They need it to be quiet. They need to have the channel on what they want to watch. 
They need to have the temperature set at the temperature they like. And if any of those things are not coming to fruition, then everyone in the house will have hell to pay because they will be angry. They're taking away the freedom for everyone in the house to live in peace and controlling the environment to meet their needs and get their satisfaction by using unrighteous anger. Another example of unrighteous anger is when you get angry when someone actually speaks truth to you about some irresponsible choices that you're making. And instead of actually being vulnerable and talking about the correction being hurtful and actually learning and developing a deeper relationship with the other person that would allow you to be learner and teacher, you become angry with unrighteous anger and defend and deflect. When we respond to truth by defense and deflection, that's actually using the tool of the enemy, unrighteous anger. So friends, when Jesus says, you've heard it said, do not murder, but I say to you, do not be angry or you are subject to judgment. Recognize that he's not saying, don't be angry at all. He's saying your anger will be judged to find out if it's righteous anger and it has my heart or it's unrighteous anger and it actually has the enemy's heart. So please do not read this and think that Christians should not be angry. I want to now continue to an amazing part of the scripture that I think is another step in our character that Christ is inviting us into. He's inviting us to look like him, to act like him, to sound like him. And he does this in the second part of this passage by calling us to reconciliation. Now, guys, I hope it was not wasted on you, the words that Jesus actually used to describe what was happening. And I hope it wasn't wasted on you that it was happening in Galilee. So let's just look at the context. He was giving the Sermon of the Mount in Galilee. Now, Galilee is approximately 80 miles from Jerusalem and the synagogue, the temple. So only about twice a year did the Galileans go to make a sacrifice, to give a gift at the altar. So when they hear him say, if you are at the altar, they're automatically thinking 80 miles away. It's a trek to get there. When you're at the altar and you remember there, not that you have ought against your brother, you might be at peace with your brother, but that your brother has ought against you, then please leave your gift at the altar and go. Again, they're hearing 80 miles and go and reconcile with your brother or sister, and then come again and give your gift. Guys, this is deep and this is profound. This is a statement on the Christian ethic that goes far beyond anything that we could accomplish in our own. In fact, all of these things that Jesus is teaching on the Sermon on the Mount are a high standard, and we have gotten accustomed to kind of lowering the standard. But the truth is the standard is high, and the standard is high because it is actual perfection. It's the way God created things to be. But if I get all caught up in my works about what I can do and can't do, I actually will only fumble this thing up and make it worse because I cannot meet this standard without the indwelling of the Holy Spirit inside of me constantly and daily changing me 
so that I actually have the heart of God. God's demonstrating here, child, I'm inviting you to do for your brother or sister what I have already done for you. I left the very presence of God and came down to earth and I reconciled with you. He's inviting you to leave his presence, giving your gift, and go and reconcile with a brother or sister who has ought with you. That's how very important and foundational harmony is in the kingdom of God. God exists in relationship himself. And he's saying, listen, if your brother or sister is angry with you, and I've just told you that their anger will be judged, and God knows us, the majority of the time when he judges our anger, it's judged as unrighteous anger. And then I am in danger of hellfire. He's saying, if your brother or sister's life is in danger, please know that they are just as important to me as you are. And I, child, see you worshiping in my house. It lets me know that you ascribe to my values. You ascribe to my kingdom. You ascribe to the way that I have created things to be. So can I count on you? to do as I would do and not leave one sheep lost? Will you go recognizing they have odd against you? And will you pursue reconciliation and harmony with them? It's time for us brothers and sisters to see the radical standard of God and say, God help because I cannot do this myself. To take a real honest look at where we're at today in our anger or lack of anger and ask God to give us his heart to make us men and women who look like him, who act like him, who sound like him, who smell like him, that are infused with the very presence of God in our life. If you're wondering where you stand in your anger, if you're wondering where you stand in your heart for reconciliation and harmony, I just invite you to look at a very simple thing that's unfolding in the world today, a very simple thing that's unfolding in our church today. Friend, what are you doing with the thousands and thousands and hundreds of thousands of people who have been the object of bias, discrimination, and racism, and right now today have ought against the way the church itself has dealt with them? Are you willing to leave the sanctuary and go and reconcile with them. That's the heart of God. That's the word of God. And God can change us into people who are pleasing to him. So Father, as we close, I just want to thank you today for the deep richness of your word. Thank you for the correction even over my life, God. I pray that you would come from my unrighteous anger. I pray that you would come for my arrogant pride. I pray that you would come for everything that does not look like you. Make us men and women and a church, Father, who paints an accurate picture to a watching world of who you are and what kingdom values look like. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. It was a blessing being with you today. Go forth and let God change your life.